OK, so at the end of lecture last time, somebody asked a really good question. Somebody who's not here. Yeah, but I, I, won't, I won't mention his name. Neil might. <laughs> the question I can paraphrase is this. What's the point of all this? Um, why are we talking about lasers? So up until now, we've talked a lot about spectroscopy, about the energy levels of atomic systems and some of the quantum mechanics behind what those energy levels mean. But this class isn't really a, uh, meant to be an entirely abstract class. Um, one of the purposes of this class, or one of the learning objectives, is for you to be able to set up your own experiment to measure the energy levels of a system. Okay, so now that we have some understanding of what those energy levels are, we're going to be doing a lot more talking about experimental techniques. And in the case of lasers, experimental equipment that you need in order to perform spectroscopy. Okay, so the first day we described a spectrum of, say, a gas as being something you could observe by taking a light and shining that light through the gas and dispersing the different wavelengths using, for example, a prism. And you get the uh, different wavelengths going in different directions. And if you measure, say you plotted the intensity as a function of angle over here, that you recorded the spectrum on a photographic plate, you might have some, um, this, is, this is intensity. Maybe it should go the other direction. This is function of position. You might see some dark lines that correspond to absorption lines in the gas. Or if you're illuminating the gas from above and you're observing the fluorescence, these wouldn't be dark lines, but they'd be bright lines corresponding to the fluorescence. And prior to the 1960s, this was essentially how all absorption spectra were made. Um, now the width of the detail that you can resolve here is not fine enough to observe a lot of the interesting quantum effects, like the hyperfine splitting, uh, the Stark effect, uh, a lot of the spin-orbit coupling that occurs that causes uh, different elements to have more complex uh, energy level systems than hydrogen. The width of this uh, resolution is determined by the size and dispersion of your prism. And it just, it's not, not nearly fine enough to observe a lot of the interesting things. And so an alternative method, or a more advanced method, is to replace this light source with a laser. Now, one of the characteristics of a laser is very narrow frequency bandwidth. So essentially, it's a monochromatic source. So then you have your gas here. And when you shine the light through that source, it's only a single wavelength, so there's no need to disperse it based on wavelength. You just measure what goes through on a photodetector and record the intensity as a function of. What you'd like to do is record the intensity as a function of wavelength. The laser puts out basically a single wavelength, so at whatever wavelength the laser is oscillating at, you get some intensity coming through. Now, if you can either tune the laser 
in frequency so that you can measure a variety of wavelengths. Then you can map out some absorption spectrum. Or if you can use a variety of different lasers that have different wavelengths, and you can get different points in the absorption spectrum. Okay? And you can do that with much better resolution because you're limited by the, the frequency bandwidth of the laser. Is the, well, the frequency bandwidth are in this type of plot. The wavelength bandwidth of the laser limits the resolution here, not the material properties of this glass. And you can get much finer resolution this way. Okay, so understanding some of the properties of some common laser systems and how these lasers can be tuned are very important in understanding what laser you might choose if you're building up an experiment and how you might use it to measure something like this. Any questions from last time or anything that people wanted to address before we continue on? Okay, then um, we mentioned a few different properties of different lasers. Um, one of the big differentiation or differentiating factors between different types of lasers is the wavelength at which they oscillate at. Okay, so while semiconductor diode lasers are very nice because they're small and they're cheap, they make great lasers for CD players and DVD players, they're not very good for exciting the dye in a dye laser because they're too high a wavelength. So the center wavelength is going to be one of the big uh, design parameters, the parameters that drives the choice of a laser in a particular experimental design. The tunability is another one. If you have some energy level system and you're trying to map out the entire set of energy bands then it's useful to have a laser that can be tuned over the whole energy spectrum so that when you're shining it into the absorbing material you can tune it such that it's on resonance with uh, transitions from the ground state to the first excited state to the second to the third to the fourth and as you tune it you'd see these absorption bands. But if you're only interested in, for example, understanding the hyperfine splitting of one particular energy level state, then as long as you have a transition that can go from some state to that state and can be tuned by a small amount, enough to cover the region of the spectrum you're interested in, then you might not need a laser that's as broadly tunable. So we'll start by talking about a few specific lasers that are of practical importance for various reasons. And then we'll talk about um, just general classes of lasers and the different regions of the spectrum that they cover. Okay, So I've chosen three lasers to talk about. The Ruby laser, that was the first laser produced. And it's, in my experience, hasn't been one that's talked about as frequently because it's not really used very much. We'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about the alexandrite laser, which is basically a ruby laser that was uh, modified to be tunable. So the ruby laser is a monochromatic laser. The alexandrite was tunable, so it's monochromatic as well, but allows the, the uh, center frequency to be tuned. 
And then we'll talk about the neodymium YAG laser because that's basically the workhorse of all um, nonlinear optics. So it's, it's a very common laser used for nonlinear optics, which allow frequencies to be converted in different, different regions of the spectrum to be, uh, to be investigated using a finite set of available laser source wavelengths. Okay, so the ruby laser is made of ruby. Ruby is chromium-doped aluminum oxide. What is aluminum oxide, more commonly known as? Does anyone know? Uh, sapphire. Al2O3 is sapphire. Um, the impurities in sapphire is what gives it color. Pure sapphire is clear. It's a common optical material. Um, it's much harder than fused silica, so it's typically used in, material, er, in applications where the hardness is important. So the two most common uses of it are supermarket checkout scanners. So those little windows that the, that the uh, laser sits below that they drag your cereal over, those are made of sapphire. And then uh, submarine windows are another one where the strength of the material is important. It has a few other differences than uh, fused silica. It's got a better thermal conductivity, which is important in certain applications. But um, for our purposes, it's a crystal. And you can embed in that crystal lattice various impurities. Uh, chromium 3 plus ion has a lot of the same uh, behaviors as a neodymium 3 plus ion, which we'll investigate when we talk about the neodymium YAG laser. Um, that chromium ion has some upper level states, upper energy level states that are fairly broad, meaning they're not discrete energies, but they're, the energy levels are spread out into a broad band. Um, that comes from coupling to lattice vibrations in the sapphire. And so the ruby laser can be pumped into one of those upper energy bands. And when this was first operated, it was operated via flash lamp pumping. So flash lamps are basically flash bulbs. They're generally designed in a way to optimize the coupling efficiency of the radiation into the laser crystal. So this shows a helical flash lamp, and then it's surrounded by a cylindrical mirror. So that when this flashes, essentially all of the light ends up inside of the laser crystal. So one of the properties of a flash lamp is broad spectral characteristics. So it's shining white light or flashes white light. So essentially, um, there are photons over a range of energy levels. And so when you have broad upper state energy levels like this, you can pump more efficiently than if you have narrow energy levels um, using a flash lamp. So if you think about some energy region as being uh, accessible via the flash lamp, these broad energy levels absorb the photons that correspond to those particular energy ranges. Those rapidly decay into this upper state, this uh, metastable upper state, that builds up a population inversion 
relative to the ground state. So you need a fair amount of pumping in order to get this upper state to be more populated than the ground state. This is a three-level system. So you need to pump it very hard. And then the decay from this metastable late to the ground state is at 694 nanometers. And that's the lasing transition. So this laser probably never would have worked if it hadn't been for uh, an accident. Um, this was first built with a series of, or a pair of plane mirrors around it. And what's the problem with that? Yeah, the, uh, in order to have a stable mode inside of the laser resonator, you need to have curved mirrors because the stable modes spread out due to diffraction. And as they spread out, they develop curvature on their wavefront. And so you need a mirror that matches that curvature. If you just have plain mirrors, as the light spreads out, it gets wider and wider. And after bouncing back and forth many times, it just leaks out of the cavity. So normally, you can't operate the laser with plain mirrors. It's called an unstable cavity. And unless you have very high gain, that doesn't produce laser output. Um, the issue here, though, was that at the same time that they had an unstable laser, they also had something called thermal lensing, which is the uh, thermal gradient inside of this laser crystal caused the index of refraction to change as a function of temperature with a distribution across the crystal that made it look like a gradient index lens. So this looked like a lens that focused the light inside the cavity to compensate for the flat mirrors. So by chance, the combination of the flat mirrors and the thermal lens allowed that cavity to be stable. So this was the first laser. Um, and it's a very simple system, a three-level system. Yeah, you'd still have the same thermal gradient. You could still have a stable cavity. So yeah, having curved mirrors doesn't preclude you from having a stable cavity with a thermal gradient. But having flat mirrors without a thermal gradient prevents you from having a stable cavity. Okay, The Alexandrite laser is a modification to this ruby laser. Um, it's a beryllium-doped ruby laser. So one more dopant added into the sapphire mix. That particular uh, material is known as Alexandrite. Um, anyone know where the Alexandrite laser is commonly used today? Laser hair removal. Um, it has a transition at 680 nanometers, which is the equivalent of the 694 nanometer transition in Ruby. Um, the energy levels are basically the same. You have the upper state energy levels that get pumped. You have the metastable level, which is the upper laser transition. And it's still a three-level system. So you've got this ground state. But now the addition of the beryllium spreads out this ground state. It causes some coupling between the lattice vibrations and the beryllium that spread out the ground state into a band. And as a result, you can have a transition from the metastable level into or to the bottom of the ground state. And that's going to be essentially the same 
energy as what you had in the Ruby laser. It's shifted a little bit because of the change in the ground state. And that's at 680 nanometers. And that's called the Ruby transition because it's the same mechanism as what you have in Ruby. But then you also have a range of possible uh, energy levels for decay from the upper state. You can go from the upper state to the top or anywhere in the middle of this ground state. So that whole range of energy levels give rise to a broadband transition, meaning you can tune the laser at any point from 701 to 826 nanometers. And so typically tuning is achieved, we mentioned this a little bit last time, by taking your laser medium and following it by a prism or an etalon or some sort of frequency filter that picks out the frequency you're interested in. If you have an etalon, then you tilt the etalon to move the uh, frequency peak to different frequencies. If it's a prism, then that disperses the wavelengths, um, makes the wavelength, the angle that the light goes, a function of wavelength. So by adjusting the angle of your reflecting mirror here, it will only be retroreflecting for one particular wavelength. So here, wavelength 1 is normal, or the ray that wavelength 1 takes is normal to this output mirror, or I'm sorry, sorry, this rear mirror. And so it traces its path back through the active medium and sets up a stable cavity for that wavelength and that wavelength only. And as you tilt this mirror, or you tilt this prism, you change the wavelength that gets retroreflected. And so you change the operating wavelength of the laser. So one of these mirrors is, has a lower transmission than the other, and that is the one where most of the light leaks out. So you have your output beam coming out here. Okay, so you'll notice on these slides there's some labeling of what the energy levels are called. So it always bugged me that I didn't really understand what those meant, so I did a little research trying to figure it out. Some of you who are chemistry students may understand this better than I do, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but um, I'll try to explain it as best as I understand it. And we'll do it by considering the neodymium 3 plus ion, which is the, uh, the dopant in the YAG crystal that produces lasing in the neodymium YAG laser. So neodymium sits right here on the periodic table. It's in the, I guess, the sixth row down. So its outer electrons are in the 4F state. It has three outer shell electrons that have an angular momentum of 1, 2, and 3 h-bar. So its total orbital angular momentum is 6 h-bar. And 6 units of angular momentum in SPDF notation is the letter I. So remember an S shell is one where the orbital angular momentum is 0. P corresponds to an angular momentum of 1. D is 2. F is 3. And those letters came from sharp, principal, diffuse, and fundamental terms that were used to describe the spectral lines seen in alkali metals. Um, well, see, that's one of the things I don't understand. It's the, it is the ion, 
for everything I've been able to find. I mean, it is an ion in neodymium YAG. And everything I've been able to find states that there are three electrons in the outermost level. Now, it seems to me that for neodymium sitting right here, triply positive ionized ion would have all of its outermost electrons stripped off. So maybe someone who's more up on their chemistry than me can explain that, that apparent paradox. Is it not the outermost? Are these not the first electrons to get stripped off? So D and then S before the F? So you can get situations where it's not just working backwards along the periodic table? Okay. Okay. Well, this must be one of them from, from what I can gather. And it's been 18 years since I took a chemistry class. Um, okay. So the total angular momentum is 6 in units of h bar. So the notation is SPDF represents 0, 1, 2, 3. And then after F, we just go alphabetically, GHI. So 6 units is represented by the letter I. And then those three electrons have parallel spin. So each electron has a spin of 1 half. So the total spin is 3 halves. And when you add that with the 6 units of angular momentum due to the orbit, if they are anti-aligned, you get 9 halves total angular momentum. If they're aligned, you get 15 halves, and you can get any integer between them. So 9 halves, 11 halves, 13 halves, or 15 halves. And so the state with 11 halves of total angular momentum is labeled 4i 11 halves. Okay, so the 4 comes from the Principal quantum number, I, total orbital angular momentum, 11 halves is the total angular momentum. <coughs> okay, so with that said, here is the energy level diagram for neodymium YAG. You can see the 4I 9 halves, 4I 11 halves, 13 halves, 15 halves. Those are the four different uh, energy states that we just described for the neodymium ion. There's some higher energy levels, and there's a 4F 3 halves energy state, which is important as well. So neodymium YAG is this. This is a, a crystal. You can pass it around. Um, that was from that was intended for a laser but it had a defect in it, so it wasn't used. Um, that's neodymium egg. And this is garnet, which is the crystal structure of the egg. What's that? That's natural. That's natural garnet. 
So just looking at that, you can get a little sense of what the crystal structure might be like. Um, so YAG stands for yttrium aluminum oxide, or yttrium aluminum garnet. Um, garnet is a particular arrangement of aluminum and oxygen. So it's just a crystal lattice in which there's a dopant embedded. It's the dopant that has all of the interesting lasing action. You can also have neodymium embedded in a number of other materials, such as glass, yttrium aluminum fluoride, uh, yttrium lithium fluoride, neodymium vanadate. Um, so lots of different materials you can embed neodymium in. Um, the energy levels that, we're showing, that I'm showing here are entirely for the neodymium. It's a four-level laser system. So four levels means the, the ground state for the system is not the lower laser state. The lower laser state in this case is the 4i 11 halves, which is above the ground state. So can someone remind me what one of the benefits of a four-level system is? Yeah, you can go to higher power. It's easier to produce a population version. Uh, what's one of the disadvantages? Yeah, lower quantum efficiency because there's um, lower energy in the output photons compared to the pump photons because of this additional energy loss that's not part of the output laser. Okay, so if we look at this, uh, the ground state is labeled zero. The lasing states are numbered here, 0, 1, 2, and 3. And there's a number of ways to pump this. Pumping a laser just means taking energy, supplying it to the system that can move atoms or molecules or, um, or ions, in this case, from the ground state to the upper lasing state. And in this case, that's not a direct process. It goes into an upper state that then quickly decays into the lasing state. That was the case with the ruby and the alexandrite lasers as well. Okay, so there's a number of higher energy level states, and the ones that are relatively close in energy to this upper level lasing state can couple very efficiently to that state through collisions. So collisional couplings allow quantum states in these different states to change to this quantum state easily because there's no large change in energy. So one way you can pump this is the same way you pump the uh, ruby laser with a flash lamp. So you can basically just blast it with radiation. Some of that radiation corresponds to a transition to this state. Some of it corresponds to this state. Some of it corresponds to a transition to this state. So you'd excite all these upper level states. They would rapidly decay into this upper level lasing state. And the time constant for that decay is about one microsecond. So it, we'll see it's rapid in terms of the upper state lifetime. This upper state here doesn't have any closely spaced energy levels below it. So unlike these states, which could easily decay into this level, there's no closely spaced energy levels that this can decay into via collisions. 
So this energy level tends not to decay into other energy level states via collisions. There's too much of an energy difference for that to be an efficient process. So if it can't decay via collision, or it can't decay rapidly via collision, then it's more likely to decay via radiative processes. It gives off a photon to decay. And so that radiative decay corresponds to the lasing transition. There's one transition from here to the 4i 11 halves state, which is the, the main lasing transition for the neodymium EMAG laser. There's also transitions to this state and to this state. And neodymium EMAG lasers can be made to operate at those transitions. I think this is 1.3 microns, and this is about 1.5 or 1.6. In order to do that, you need to suppress this one. This is the most, uh, the most likely transition, or the strongest transition. So if you put a filter in the cavity that blocks that transition, then you won't get amplification of that. You won't get that transition oscillating. And you can get laser output on one of these other transitions. OK, but if this upper state doesn't decay via non-radiative means to these lower states, then we'd expect that it will decay due to radiative means. What's wrong with this, though? Um, a transition from a 4F 3 halves state to a 4I 11 halves state. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, the, the angular momentum change is 4. Right? And what was the selection criteria for transition to be allowed? Yeah, a photon only carries one, mo one unit of angular momentum. So it would seem that this transition shouldn't be allowed. Okay? And to first order, it's not. Um, if you just had the neodymium ion, it wouldn't be allowed. But this is another case where the crystal lattice that it's embedded in slightly changes its, its uh, properties. So this crystal lattice ha internally has some dipole moments in it. So you have positive and negative charges that are separated. And internally, those uh, electric fields interact with the neodymium ion. It's an ion, so it's going to be displaced by an electric field. And alter its energy levels. That process is called the Stark shift. So it alters its fields. That's what produces the splitting of the lines, where you'd expect there to be one energy level state. There's actually um, a degenerate number of states that get split due to interaction with the YAG. And then in addition, it sets up some dipole moment that is a perturbation to the, uh, say it's a perturbation to the, to the quantum state of the neodymium ion that allows a, it's, it's a, it's the best way to say it. When a system is when a transition is forbidden, okay, an easy way to understand why it's forbidden is to say that the uh, angular momentum 
difference between the two states is not equal to 1. If it's equal to 1, then a photon can carry away that angular momentum. In the quantum picture, where we looked at the wave functions, we said that the uh, dipole moment of the transition had to be non-zero in order for it to absorb or emit radiation. If the dipole moment were zero, that it was a forbidden transition. Well, the YAG alters the wave function of the neodymium ion and introduces a slight dipole moment. So as a result, this transition becomes weakly allowed. It's not entirely forbidden, but it's not very, uh, not very not a very rapid transition. So it has a long lifetime. So the lifetime of this upper state is about 230 microseconds. Okay, so we compare that to the one microsecond lifetime of these upper states. It means as soon as you pump the energy into the upper states, you can essentially consider it in this, in this upper lasing level, where it stays for a long period of time. The lower lasing level has a time constant of about 10 nanoseconds. So essentially, as soon as any transition occurs to this lower state, that lower state immediately decays into the ground state. So this level is always empty. This level always has some population built up. So it's very easy to generate a population inversion. So this is a very um, slow, slowly decaying upper state. Well, a long time constant for the decay means a very narrow frequency bandwidth for the light given off. The Heisenberg uncertainty relation says a long uncertainty in time is a small uncertainty in frequency. And so this transition has a very small laser bandwidth, or a very small atomic bandwidth. It allows the neodymium YAG laser to have very low laser frequency noise. That's one of the advantages of this laser. One reason why it's very commonly used is the laser output is very stable in time. The frequency is essentially, um, it's a very good frequency reference. The frequency doesn't drift very rapidly compared to other lasers. Other things that make this a nice laser for a lot of different applications is it can have a high laser, a high power output um, that's common for a lot of four-level systems. Because YAG is a pretty good thermal conductor, you can extract heat from the laser rods pretty easily. Um, and that's often what limits how much power you can get out of a laser. Is as you pump energy into the system, the transitions from the upper levels to the upper lasing state give off essentially heat. And from the lower level, from the lower lasing state to the lower level, that amount of energy gives, is given off as heat. And you need to extract that heat from the laser if you're not going to have it eventually heat and crack the crystal or cause uh, thermal gradients in the crystal that screw up the laser wavefront. So YAG is a good thermal conductor, which is nice. It can be made very small. Okay, So that rod that I was passing around is enough to probably make 40 lasers from. We're going to cut it into thin disks. So you can have it very small. Um, that makes it nice. You can make it in a nice compact housing, make it very uh, robust and reliable. 
So we'll see when we compare this to like a dye laser, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, there's very little that can go wrong with this type of laser. Now, I said you could pump this with flash lamp pumping. That's typically not, or I shouldn't say it's not done. It's, it's becoming less and less common these days. The reason is because you can also pump with laser diodes. And this transition from here to here occurs for a wavelength of 808 nanometers. You can buy laser diodes pretty cheap that have a wavelength of 808 nanometers. And if you do that, all the energy in that laser diode goes into the upper lasing state. So unlike flash lamp pumping, where a lot of the energy is unused and, and doesn't get absorbed in the material. Also, unlike flash lamps, laser diodes can be run CW. So you can get a uh, continuous output from a neodymium mag laser if you're using laser diode pumping. You can also pump it at 869 nanometers directly into the upper state. If you do that, you get a little bit better quantum efficiency. But typically, 808 is what's used there. One other note that's kind of of interest is the most, well, if you were to build a laser based on this neodymium YAG system, it might look like this. You might have a, a laser diode here with a lens shines light into the crystal. You might have a dichroic mirror that allows that laser diode light to go through, but then would reflect the operating wavelength. You'll get emission at several different wavelengths. And whichever one is the strongest will build up, and that's what eventually produces the output. And that's typically the 1.064 micron light. If you put a filter in to block that, you can get the other wavelengths to build up. I mentioned that. And then the frequency of the output I mentioned is very stable. The line width is on the order of a kilohertz, 1 to 10 kilohertz. So the frequency, the center frequency, is about 10 to the 14 hertz. So if you were to plot the intensity as a function of frequency, that's a relative frequency stability of about 10 to the, is that 10 to the 11? So that's very good. If you use that to make a clock, right, you could go 10 to the 11 seconds, which is what, 100,000 years before the clock drifted by one second. What that means. Okay, so it's got very good frequency stability. Now, if your laser mirror moves around, though, it might move around due to seismic vibrations or acoustic coupling that push on the mirror, that can Doppler shift the light and introduce frequency noise on the output. So if you think of the laser cavity, 
as having some response. That response is moving around. The output is going to be the convolution of these two things. And as the cavity moves back and forth, that output is going to vary in amplitude. And that can introduce unwanted noise that's not inherent in the neodymium system. So a common modification of this system is called the NPRO, the non-planar ring oscillator. Let's try to draw it. It's a very specific geometry for the laser crystal. The crystal is cut into this little, uh, this little shape that looks like a pentagon. Typically, this, is small. this would fit inside of a dime. It's less than a centimeter across. And the system operates on total internal reflection inside this crystal. So there are no laser mirrors. The light just oscillates inside of the laser material. And that greatly reduces the, uh, the noise couplings that you have due to the external components. And now, you can, as I mentioned, there's not a lot that can go wrong. I mean, here you've got a crystal. You pump diode light onto it, and you get laser light out. And that's pretty much it. You have to extract heat from it, so you can put a heat sink on the bottom, pump the diode light in from the top. But it's a pretty straightforward device. We'll see that's not the case for a lot of other types of lasers. Okay, so what other types of lasers do we have? Here's a chart that shows the different laser options at different frequency regions or different regions of the spectrum. Um, I know you can't read that, but uh, this is from a company that sells dye. Dye is what goes into a dye laser. A dye laser is one type of tunable laser. So you can tune it over broad region of the spectrum. And for any given dye, that's what's plotted in one of these bars, you can tune it over some range. And if you want to tune it beyond that range, you have to use a different dye, a different laser material. So you take out the laser material, you put in something else. And so you can choose different dyes based on the region of the spectrum you need. And this lists all of those dyes. So you can see there's a lot of them. And then they're grouped into categories of how you pump them. You can see one series of dyes right here is pumped by neodymium YAG excitation. So even if you're not using this laser as your source for a <coughs> spectroscopic measurement, you might still have a neodymium YAG laser in the experiment to pump a dye <coughs> laser. You can see there's flash lamp pumped dyes, other laser pumped dyes as well. Okay, so we'll talk by region of the spectrum. We'll start with UV, do visible, and then IR. So in the UV, there's dye lasers. And then, I'm not sure why I have this in UV, but uh, rare earth ion vibronic lasers. That's more uh, in the visible and near infrared. So a dye laser uses a, a dye, like physically, you know, food coloring type of stuff, dye. And there's various different chemicals that you can use as dyes. They're usually um, circulating as liquids. 
I mentioned, the dye that you choose depends on the spectral region of interest. And these dyes are generally organic molecules. One of the things about them are that they're very complex. A very common one is the rhodamine 6G. This is the, the, uh, the, I don't even know what to call it. See, it's been too long since I had chemistry. What do you call that diagram? That's the, someone fill it, the words for me. That's the molecular structure. Is that right? That's the molecular structure of the rhodamine 6G molecule. You can see that it's got some 70 or so atomic components in the molecule. And if you remember when we talked about HCl and the homework involving uh, CO2, we were dealing with all the different vibrational and rotational degrees of freedom. And like for CO2, we said there were, th well, for HCl, that was just uh, two, two atoms bound together. And so there's one degree of vibrational freedom. Bond length stretching. For CO2, there were three degrees. There was the symmetric stretching, then the anti-symmetric stretching, and then the bending. So when you get up to about 70 atoms, you can imagine there's a load of degrees of freedom. And there's so many energy levels corresponding to those degrees of freedom that they all basically overlap. So you don't have just discrete energy levels, you have entire bands of the energy spectrum that can be occupied. And so this would be, this is an absorption spectrum for this particular dye. And so you can think of this as um, complementary to an energy level diagram like this. And what it's showing is that there's regions of the spectrum where there's not just lines, but there's just broad bands. Okay, so this is most of the visible. You know, from 450 out to uh, 575, this dye has large absorption. It also has absorption down here in the ultraviolet. So there's energy levels correspond to those, those wavelengths. And so what you can do is you can pump it with any of these wavelengths where it absorbs. And if you do that, you've essentially got atoms in the upper states that can decay to low, any state that's below it. So if you pump it, say, at 350 nanometers, you can expect to get fluorescence anywhere in this absorption band, that, anywhere that there's absorption at higher wavelengths meaning lower energy. If you pump it at 480 nanometers, right here, there's a little bit of absorption. So you can get energy absorbed there. And then any lower energy transitions uh, can be observed. Lower energy means higher wavelength. So this entire region of the absorption band can produce fluorescence. And that's what we see here. This is the fluorescence spectrum of rhodamine 6G when excited at 480 nanometers. It says it has a quantum yield of, I don't know if that's 0.9 or 0.95. We'll define that in just a minute. But essentially it means that 90 to 95% of the energy that you pumped in is coming out as fluorescence as opposed to heat.
What color is it? Good question. So let's look at the spectrum. 500 nanometers is what color? It's green, and it's absorbing that. It's absorbing green. It's not absorbing red. It's not absorbing. Well, that's kind of ultraviolet down there. So I would say if you shine light into this, it's going to absorb the green, not absorb the red. So the red light will go through. So if you're looking in transmission, it would look red. Well, it can absorb this light and then re-emit it in this region. So if you're shining bright white light from the side and you're looking from straight on, what you're going to see is some of the white light that got absorbed, say the green light that got absorbed and then re-emitted towards you. So probably look, say, you know, greenish to greenish to greenish yellow. That said, uh, I haven't worked with this particular dye, so I haven't seen it. So, I mean, it's the same thing as what color is the sky? What color is the sky? <laughs> well, it's right. It reflects, it, it scatters blue light. So during the day, it looks blue. But at sunset, it looks red because it scatters the blue light. So depending on whether you're looking at what gets through or what gets scattered, it's different. Okay, so typically this dye is used in a solution. It's either a liquid dye or it's, it's in, a, in a solution. Um, depending on how this is used really affects how the laser is set up. Um, if the dye is just sitting stationary and you have lasing, essentially you burn out the dye, you saturate it. And so typically need the dye to flow and if it's a CW system, it's a continuous wave system, you need that flow rate to be relatively fast. And so that's typically achieved by jets. So it's sprayed out at high velocity through a nozzle. And that flowing dye is what the, the light passes through in the laser cavity. If you compare that, I guess we'll do it on the next slide. Um, we'll compare that to a pulse system. We'll see how that changes the, the setup a little bit. Well, Solids can too. Uh, well, it's saturation. In either case, it's saturation. We said three level systems. Um, I didn't hear. That's, well, that's true to the ex until you have the bottom level decaying rapidly compared to the top. And at that point, then you have other effects. How fast does the upper, when you have enough lasing power inside of a four level system, eventually what you have is that uh, the stimulated emission is a mechanism which depletes the upper state. And if that occurs at the same rate that you're pumping it, then it's saturated. But would the laser still not shine? Uh, no, you still, you still 
oh, it's st it would still produce output. But what happens is you don't get more output power. I don't know. I'll look into it. I'll get back to you next time. I don't. I've got a lot of experience with neodymium YAG lasers. Not a lot of experience with dyes. Mostly, my experience with these is trying to fix them because they always break. And you can kind of understand why just looking at this. There's a lot of plumbing involved. And when you have plumbing, you have things that corrode. When you have things that corrode, you have leaks. I mean, so you have, yeah, you have to have a plumber. Um, and then some of these dyes are poisonous and toxic, issues like that. Um, so there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Um, Well, the, the flow is generally transverse to the, to the light, so you don't really have, you don't have a Doppler shift to deal with. Um, and typically, dye lasers are used because of the broad bandwidth of the dyes, allow them to be used in either a pulsed mode or a tunable mode, where you're not after narrow line width operation, you're actually after broad line width operation, so that's not an issue. Okay, so. The energy level system might look like this, where you've got some ground state, and that state is actually a band because there's a lot of closely spaced energy levels. And then the higher energy level states. Um, this diagram, I think, is taken out of uh, I keep forgetting the name Andrews and Demidov. So if we follow the possible routes that the uh, Quanta can take through the system. When it's pumped into the excited state, it then decays into the upper lasing state via a non-radiative transition. That has some rate that we'll call K of non-radiative. So we'll use K to represent decay rates. You want that to be fast. So you want all the pumping to essentially end up very rapidly in the upper state. A couple things can happen to it once it's in the upper state. If this is a singlet state, then it has an allowed transition to the ground state. And that allowed transition is labeled 4 here. That's actually to the upper level or some, some point in this ground state band. And that's the lasing transition. It can also decay non-radiatively, so due to vibrations. That's labeled 2, another non-radiative decay rate. Or it can collide and uh, collide with neighbors and shift its uh, atomic state into a triplet state, which has a forbidden transition to the ground state. And this is what gives rise to phosphorescence. And that is a long-lived state and doesn't, doesn't contribute to the lasing transition. So if you want to describe how effective a particular dye is as a laser material, you can do that by describing its uh, fluorescence quantum yield, phi sub f. And it's the ratio of the decay rate due to the radiative transition. 
step four, relative to all the other transitions that can occur. So the non-radiative transition, the radiative transition, and then the transition over here into the uh, forbidden state, or to the state with a forbidden transition. So from this upper level state, there's three ways the system can get back down to the ground state. This path, this path, and this path. And you want most of the material taking the radiative path. And so the fraction of the population that takes a radiative path is given by the ratio of the radiative decay rate to the total decay rate. And that can be anywhere between, well, can be anywhere between zero, but for typical dyes is between 0.5 and 0.9. Okay, so a CW dye laser looks something like this. Um, you've got some flowing dye in a jet. Let's see, where is that? I can't see it. Um, and then you've got an etalon in the cavity that acts as a frequency filter to choose the frequency of interest. And you can tune that to, uh, oh, there's the dye jet right there. So it's being pumped by a laser pump beam coming in off axis. You've got an etalon to tune the uh, frequency of the output. By adjusting the angle of that etalon, you can tune the frequency over a large range. You may need more than one etalon. If the tuning range of the etalon, or the, the uh, free spectral range of the etalon is small compared to the tuning range of the laser, then you might need a series of etalons. So a series of filters, one for coarse tuning, medium tuning and fine tuning. Uh, yeah. The output will be out. I mean, every one of these mirrors will leak some light because no mirror is perfect. But the mirror that has the lowest reflectivity, it has the most light leaking out, will then have the most light transmitted. So a high reflector mirror can be five nines of reflectivity, so 0.99999 reflectivity. An output coupler, you can specify it from the, from the vendor, but typically an output coupler might be 99% reflective, so two nines. So one part, I guess uh, 10 parts per million of the circulating field, or the circulating power actually, will leak out these mirrors. When you specify the reflectivity of a mirror, it's always the power reflectivity. So 10 parts per million might leak out here, whereas um, you know, one part per 100 will leak out here. So one part per 100 is like, what, 10,000 times greater than 10 parts per million. So the output out this, in this beam will be like 10,000 times greater than out these other mirrors. Well. If you have just two mirrors and you have a linear cavity, then you set up standing waves. And depending on the laser material, standing waves may or may not be a problem. Um, in this particular configuration, I'm not sure why that's an issue. Um, but one of the problems with standing waves is it sets up what's called hole burning. You have a, you have a standing wave pattern. So you have regions where the uh, intensity is fluctuating largely and other places that are nodes, there's essentially no intensity. Um, 
the regions where it's fluctuating tend to saturate the material. Okay, so a couple things to be aware of. If you're operating this in a pulsed mode, then you can pulse it, you can pump it with pulses as well. Um, and that's typically done. You can operate the flow at much lower flow rates because if you're just pulsing it periodically, um, the material has more time to flow before being uh, re reinterrogated. So typically, just a fluid cell, just, just a uh, tube with fluid flow rather than a jet is used in a pulsed system. Um, the tuning elements in a pulsed system, because pulsed systems tend to have higher laser power, we have energy being extracted in a shorter period of time, means that the uh, transmissive elements like prisms or etalons become problematic because the power can damage those materials, damage or produce thermal distortions in. So you tend to have gratings or other reflective elements instead of the transmissive elements. And then we can understand a little bit about the line width of the pulse. The line width is, is this for the laser output. If we consider the fact that um, the duration of the laser pulse has to be shorter than the duration of the pump. Right? If you're pumping it for a microsecond, you wouldn't expect your pulse to last longer than that. But it's got to be longer than the radiative decay rate, radiative decay time of the material. And so inverting these quantities, that gives us a relationship between the frequency bandwidth of the pulse. The inverse of the radiative decay rate is the bandwidth of the dye. The inverse of the pump length is the frequency of the pumping, the repetition rate of the pump. And that gives us a, a range on the bandwidth of these lasers when operated in a pulse mode. Um, you can pump them continuously. If you're operating it in a pulse mode, it's just a little more efficient to also pulse the pump. You can pump it continuously, and if you do, this becomes infinite and this becomes zero. Well, typically, what you would do is, if you pulse the pump, when the pump's on, you get population inversion, you get lasing, and then the pu pulse stops. Uh, the pump stops, the pulse stops. Yeah, because you no longer have inversion. Right. There's other methods to produce pulse laser output that have shorter pulses. It's called Q-switching or mode locking, and that's not what's done here. These pulses aren't ultra-short pulses. Okay, so I mentioned the uh, dye lasers is one tunable laser source. The other was the rare earth ion vibronic lasers, um, more commonly known as solid state materials. Um, they're materials such as tie sapphire, you've heard of tie sapphire laser, that are solid state, so they're crystals. 
that have uh, a range of tuning, a, a tuning range, because of, because of the vibrational um, modes of the lattice that the, the dopant is sitting in, causing the energy levels to spread out into a band. Okay, much as they did um, for the Alexandrite laser. So these tend to be more efficient in the near IR. So they're used at longer wavelengths and dye lasers. Because they're solid state, the system is basically more robust. You don't have plumbing to deal with. You just have crystals. They can be much smaller and more robust. Again, if you don't have plumbing and tubes and pumps, everything can fit in a smaller package. And compared to dye lasers, this is, uh, I think, again, from Andrews and Demidov. It states that they're a less mature commercial product, but I think today that that may not be the case. Been around less, haven't been around as long. So here's a chart that shows some of the different rare earth ion vibronic lasers. Um, tulium doped YAG, cobalt doped magnesium fluoride, chromium doped magnesium silicate. Um, the one that's most commonly used is a titanium doped sapphire, Thai sapphire laser. Um, the reason for that is its bandwidth is large, 660 nanometers to 1180 nanometers, so it covers most or a large portion of the uh, near infrared and some of the visible. So basically, this is the same diagram I showed for the Alexandrite laser, but the energy levels get spread out, and as a, a result, there's a range of laser frequency transitions that are allowed. Yeah, you can pretty much make any, you can make jello lays. Yeah. If you know where the energy levels are and you understand um, if you pump something into an upper state, where does that go? I mean, there can be energy levels, but maybe they're not efficiently coupled to the states that are actually getting pumped. But all you need is an inversion and then um, mirrors. And you need to have, the requirement is that the round trip gain has to, well, in steady state, the round trip gain will equal the round trip losses. Okay, so if you make the losses really small, then for even a small gain, you can get lasing. But if your losses are larger than the round trip gain, you'll never have lasing. So you need good mirrors. You need good mirrors and you need good alignment of the mirrors. And the lower the uh, inherent gain in the material is, the more carefully you need to align the mirrors and the more susceptible you'll be to fingerprints and dust and everything else in the mirrors. Okay, so those are some tunable sources. There are some quasi-tunable sources that can be line-tuned, meaning you can select uh, specific discrete frequencies, but not a continuum. Um, there's the molecular gas lasers, so think the CO2 laser. And there's the lead salt diode lasers, which are essentially, um, they're very much like, uh, like the uh, laser diodes that are in your CD player. So the molecular gas lasers, like the CO2 laser, um, allow lasing action usually on a series of um, vibrational and rotational lines. We saw that in the last homework. 
They're line tunable, meaning because there's so many different closely spaced rotational energy levels, you can have lasing transitions between different rotational energy levels or different rotational states of, this, of the same two uh, or the same upper and lower vibrational state and get slightly different laser frequencies. Pressure broadening can be used to spread those line widths. So if you increase the pressure of the molecular gas, then you can get their uh, you can get a change in the um, in the frequency of the uh, rotation or change in the ener energy levels due to interaction with the neighbors, and that can cause an inhomogeneous spread. Meaning different different atoms have different uh, energy level. different energy level spacings. So different atoms will laze at different frequencies. And in a, in a large collection of atoms then, or large collection of molecules, you can have an increased number of laser transition lines. Yeah, as it heats up, you're going to increase the pressure. Increasing the pressure is going to broaden the spectral lines. So you would expect to have the uh, frequency line width to either spread or to have mode hopping where it jumps between lines as it operates higher and higher temperatures. So carbon dioxide laser typically used at 10.6 microns. Uh, methanol laser is another example of this. It can be used at a number of wavelengths that are centered all through the infrared. So from 70 all the way out to almost 700 microns. So those are called line tunable. The lead salt diode lasers are ones that are made up of two particular classes of atoms, the 4B and the 6 group materials. So those are used to form semiconductor diode laser. Um, and so the electron hole recombination between those semiconductors gives rise to um, gives rise to a photon. And the energy level of that uh, electron, or the energy given off by that electron hole recombination is a function of the, the separation of the two materials. And so when you build this, you can design it to have sort of any, any spacing you want there. That can give you essentially any frequency output that you choose uh, within the range, typical range from 3 to 27 microns. So these are in the infrared. So you can pick a wavelength that you're interested in and then order a, order a laser for that wavelength, but you can't necessarily tune it once it's in operation. So those are some of the lasers that can be used to tune a to uh, tune the wavelength. There are other ways to tune the wavelength. There are some wavelengths that you might want to use in an experiment that aren't accessible via one of these laser sources. So one of the tools we have for accessing those regions of the spectrum is nonlinear optics. So nonlinear optics refers to second harmonic generation, four-wave mixing, um, a number of processes including optical parametric oscillators, 
stimulated Raman scattering, stimulated Brion scattering. There's a number of different uh, terms for different types of nonlinear interactions. The basic idea is that in a linear material, the response of a system is proportional to the driving force. And in an optics experiment, that driving force is an oscillating electric field, and the material's response is the polarization of the material. So if you have a sinusoidal oscillating field, there will be a given frequency that describes that wave train. If you drive the system in a nonlinear way, so you essentially um, excite it with enough force, you think about a speaker, if you turn the amplitude up on your stereo all the way to the point you're driving the speaker into its constraint, you'll hear it rattle. Right? And then what was a nice sinusoidal sound wave will produce sort of a square wave as the speaker slams into the, the two rails. And likewise, for an optical material, if you drive it hard enough with enough intensity, the uh, polarization of the material, the electrons in the material being displaced from the, the nuclear charge, will might not hit a hard wall like this, but they're not going to respond linearly. They get further away, they get pulled further away, they um, behave less like a spring. And the point is that if you have this nonlinear behavior, we have these sharp transitions. The frequency spectrum has these harmonics. And because of that, if you drive the system with one particular frequency and the material is nonlinear, it will generate other frequencies, meaning other wavelengths. So I mentioned that the neodymium YAG laser is sort of a common source for nonlinear interactions. Um, one of the reasons is you can generate high power and high intensity because you can operate it in a pulse mode, Q-switched mode, where you get very uh, high energy in short pulse lengths. That's necessary for efficient second harmonic generation, for efficient nonlinear optics in general. So if you frequency double this, in the quantum picture you can think of the material is absorbing two photons of infrared or near-infrared light and emitting one photon of green light that has the same energy as the two photons it absorbed. So this is a 1064 nanometer laser source. When its frequency doubled, that's 532 nanometers. That's green. So if we look at the spectrum uh, from ultraviolet to near-infrared, Thai sapphire laser can tune essentially the, most of the near-infrared. The neodymium YAG, when you double it, gives you green. And then if you combine that green with Thai sapphire in a nonlinear material, you can get four-wave mixing, where it's the same process. Think of the material as absorbing one green photon and one of these Thai sapphire photons and emitting a photon, a single photon, that has the total energy of those two absorbed. And so that gives you this region of the spectrum as you tune the Thai sapphire and it mixes with the second harmonic of YAG, you get this region. Or if you directly double the Thai sapphire laser, you can get this region of the spectrum covered. You can look at the third harmonic of YAG, which occurs, I think that's 353, or the fourth harmonic at 262, allow you then to take the Thai sapphire tuning range mix it with the third or fourth harmonic and get ranges 
in the ultraviolet that you can tune through. So most of the visible spectrum, this region of the visible spectrum is, is covered by the dye lasers. So between the tunable lasers that we had and nonlinear optics, you can achieve a laser source in virtually any region of the visible near ultraviolet or near infrared region of the spectrum. What's that? Sorry, I still didn't. So, you know, the defense, like they have lasers. Oh, the defense, like, uh, like Star Wars, right. the strategic defense initiative thing. Um, it's, there's a two part system. The first part is uh, uh, it's a, the neodymium YAG laser. It's used to target, to illuminate the target. So it's a low power system, it's pulsed, it shines on the target, and the satellite does, uses that for target acquisition. The high power system is a chemical pumped, I don't know what kind of laser it is, it's chemically pumped, and it, uh, it's probably down here in the ultraviolet, high energy means, means good kill effectiveness. Uh, that's why it's chemically pumped. You need to pump to very high energy levels. Doing it optically would not be very efficient. Um, that's like a single shot system. So the chemical reaction occurs. It's a single shot process. Yeah. 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 So when I say pulse, I don't know how long the pulse, I think the pulse is limited by the duration of the chemical reaction. And I don't know, I don't know the length of that. Um, there was a, the research group I worked in at Stanford had a grant to develop the target acquisition laser. So I know a little more about that. I don't know anything about the, the shoot it down laser. Okay, so we've seen that there's a lot of ways to generate different wavelengths. And the reason you'd want to do that is um, if you're looking at different, uh, different parts of the energy spectrum of a molecule that you're studying, you may need to investigate that with different wavelengths depending on where that energy level is. Okay, so we'll learn a lot more about different experimental techniques and we'll see examples of all these different lasers in action in, in future lectures. <laughs>